So uh, euphemisms are interesting. You know, a saying that one culture might recognize and another doesn't. When you say something, but you don't really mean what you say, but it stands for something else. Or sometimes, you know, it's just it's like a poetic way of saying something. Like, you know, we reached at least 100 people at Trunk or Treat, but that's really just a drop in the bucket compared to all of Tucson, right? Drop in of the bucket. Drop in the bucket, that's from the Bible. That's where that phrase comes from. So here we are, thousands of years removed. The saying's probably something like 2,700 years old, and we still use it because it's from the Bible. There's another saying in the Bible, the handwriting on the wall. Maybe you've heard that expression. It's kind of like something that's an obvious hint about what's going to happen. I'm not surprised by this. I saw the handwriting on the wall a long time ago. That's kind of how we would use it. Or this one I found offline, online. The offsite manager, uh, the offsite upper management meeting is writing on the wall that something big is about to happen. So that saying, writing on the wall, that's also from the Bible. The first one I think was from Isaiah. This one, the writing on the wall, is from Daniel. And that's the chapter we're in in Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. So let me read to you what happened and where this story comes from. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink wine from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the wall. The king watched as the hand wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will, made the third, will be made the third highest ruler in my kingdom. Third highest? I'm holding out for a second. Why, why did he say third highest? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. You know, this time of year where people out there are talking about the Day of the Dead and Halloween and Vampire movies are becoming popular, have you noticed? And zombie movies and Walking Dead TV shows. Everything's all about freakiness. I don't quite appreciate that kind of stuff myself. I don't like freakiness. I don't like gore. But it seems to be the thing nowadays. People like to get scared. And then what happens is, of course, their scare threshold gets higher and higher. So what scared you once doesn't scare you anymore. Now you're looking for something grosser and scarier. Not for me. But I can tell you this. If I was sitting around with a bunch of my friends and all of a sudden a hand appeared, just thin air and started writing on the wall, that'd win. That'd be scary. That'd win the prize. Can you imagine how freak out that would be? Not like, you know, TV where you know, ha it's fake. This is real. It says his knees knocked together and his legs lost strength. He was so scared. <laughs> I'll bet he was. Why did that happen? And what's it mean? I don't know. We can't make it out. Well, what do we do? We'll go to that in a minute. But first, you probably notice this. If you've been with me for the last few weeks, the king of Babylon has been Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar this, Nebuchadnezzar that. And today it's Belshazzar. Who's Belshazzar? Where did he come from? Well, Belshazzar 
according to secular archaeologists and historians, for years said, oh, that king never existed. That's evidence once more that the Bible is just a book full of fables because it mentions a king of Babylon who never was a king of Babylon. Because this is the night of the fall of Babylon, and everybody knows, according to secular history, that the king who ruled over Babylon when it, was, when it fell was Nabonidus. The fact that Daniel says it was Nebuchadnezzar, I mean was a Belshazzar, Belshazzar, proves that the Bible is a fairy tale. It's a myth. It's just a story that men made up and is full of errors. Now, you know people who believe in the Bible don't accept that kind of thing. When a secular archaeologist says the Bible is wrong, our immediate response is, no, it's not. You're wrong. Do some more work. And they're like, look, we've got proof positive that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. This was the last night of Babylon's existence. When will you Bible people learn? Well, I just say, dig deeper. And sure enough, they found an archaeological thing, a, a cylinder with a bunch of writing on it. And it was the writings of Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon. Let me read to you a piece of what it said on the cylinder. And there's a picture for you. That's, that is the cylinder. And as for Belshazzar, my firstborn son, my own child, let the fear of your great divinity be in his heart. He's praying for his son. And may he commit no sin and enjoy happiness in life. When's he praying for his son? As you go on and read the archaeological data, what had happened was Nabonidus made his son co-regent, co-king. And then he went on a pilgrimage, and he left his son in charge of Babylon when he went on his spiritual pilgrimage. When he went on his pilgrimage, he was praying for his son. He heard the Persians were coming, so he went to fight with the Persians. He lost, so he fled town. Babylon was still secure because it had huge, massive walls, and nobody could get in there. So Nabonidus was still king, but he was gone. Guess who was in charge as co-regent? King of Babylon. Belshazzar. So now what it has done, it has done, at least for those of us who know better, just the opposite. It doesn't show you that the Bible knows less. It shows you that, as we thought all along, the Bible knows more. Because it told believers for the last thousands of years who the last king of Babylon was on the day that it fell, and nobody believed it but us. We knew more. And that's always the case. And so I wonder, you know, for those of you who have been with me for some time, I talk to you about archaeology all the time. And it almost always goes like this. They said this wasn't true about the Bible till they dug, dug something up and said it was true. How many times does the Bible have to be shown correct until people stop doubting it and do something like this? Well, the Bible says Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon, but our secular records show that it was Nabonidus. I'm sure both are right. We'll figure it out. But they don't do that. They, well, the Bible's wrong. Time and time again, though, the Bible has made them look... I don't want to say stupid because that's mean, but it makes them look stupid. Because after 20 times, you'd figure they'd stop. But this goes on for hundreds of times. So I asked myself the question, why don't most archaeologists believe the Bible? Even though less than 100 years ago, like some of the foremost archaeologists used it as a guidebook for discovering things. And they still do, by the way. They'll look at a geographical description in the Bible and start digging and find a town. And yet, when it says something, 
they'll disregard it. Why? What's going on? What are they thinking? All I can think of is it's a matter of pride. I think that's why most secular archaeologists don't trust the Bible. They think they know better. Their education and their professors make them the smartest people. And if what they know conflicts with what the Bible says, obviously the Bible must be wrong. They would rather trust their own education over the most famous book in human history that the wisest men on the planet have trusted for the last 3,500 years. But they know better. Their opinions carry more weight than the Bible does. To me, that is simply pride. They're too sophisticated to believe the Bible. So this story of what happened on the night that Babylon fell, it's an interesting story because it's specifically given to show God dealing with the sin of pride. Let me read to you exactly what goes on. After writing was on the wall, nobody could read it. They got their legs back under them again. They said, what do we do? None of the wise men can read this. Well, there was a guy named Daniel. He's been in the kingdom for years. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar relied on him for all this kind of thing. Let's see if Daniel can read this. So they went and they fetched Daniel. And Daniel said this. O king, the most high God gave your forefather Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, the text says father, but in Eastern thought, a grandfather's a father. And so it says your father Nebuchadnezzar's sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave Nebuchadnezzar, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Anyone he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and he ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets them over whomever he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, even though you knew all of this. Instead, you set yourself up against the God of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold. They can't see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's why he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Daniel is a man of God. He is standing before the man who can have him executed and chewing him out. Read him the right act. And now let me tell you what it says on the wall. This is the scription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. This is what Daniel said. This is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Because the word Mene means numbered. Okay? On the wall it just said numbered. 
Daniel fills in the blanks. God has numbered your days, the days of your reign, and brought it to an end. Not will bring it to an end like it's some future event. As I told you before, this is the night Babylon falls. The next word, to kale. Here's what Daniel says. To kale. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. To kale means to weigh something. And obviously, Belshazzar came up short. Then he says, Paris. Which is interesting. Because on the wall, it says, Upharsin. Uh, the P and the PH sound are the same in Hebrew. So it's the same letter. It, it could be pronounced, just to benefit you, Upharsin. You can hear the word Paris in Parsin. Because the word Parsin has the word Paris as its root. But he's using both words in this, Paris and Parsin. Paris means divided. But Parsin sounds like Persian. So it's a play on words. He says, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So there was a riddle on the wall, and Daniel just solved it for them. Then at Belshazzar's command, okay, your kingdom is divided and given to the Persians. Remember, dad already lost to the Persians and fled. The Persians are surrounding Babylon, and Daniel just said, you're toast, you're going to lose, the Persians win. What would you do at that moment, you're king of Babylon? I'd be pretty uptight. By the way, if the Persians are surrounding Babylon, why are they having a party? A thousand guys together drinking wine? Because they're arrogant. Pride again. You know they can't get through Babylon. Nobody's getting... These walls are so thick. Ah, you're fine. Let's have a party. Don't worry about those guys. Well, here's what Belshazzar does. Right after Daniel tells him what it's all about. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. Okay, a few things. He was made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now you know why he was third. Nabonidus, Belshazzar, Daniel. The Bible is true, even when people don't understand it. And how long was he made third highest in the kingdom? <laughs> Ten minutes? <laughs> Congratulations, you're new th now third highest in the kingdom. The Persians are here! The Persians are here! Run! Because while this was happening, they were breaking into the city. And they were right. They didn't get through the walls. They blocked up the river. I think it was the Tigris River. They diverted it, and that left a huge gap, and they just walked under the wall. <laughs> Came into the city took over without even a major battle. Pretty brilliant. Then it says, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. You ready for this? Look up Darius the Mede, and here's what they'll say. This person never existed. I kid you not. In the same context of Belshazzar, who never existed, now they're saying Darius never existed. And I'm just like thinking, really? Really? Pride was Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. That's why God gave him insanity for seven years and he lived like a wild animal because he thought himself so much. God said, no, you're this much. And he stayed this much until he recognized that God was the one in control and not him. Nebuchadnezzar said, I've got the biggest kingdom on the planet and I did it by myself. 
And God said, no, I gave it to you, and you know I gave it to you. Don't do that again. And he did. And God said, fine. Then his descendant, Belshazzar, same thing. I'm so awesome. I'm so wonderful. I set myself up against the God of heaven. I'm going to drink wine out of his goblets. Pride. Pride was Belshazzar's downfall. It's the downfall of many of the scholars today. Pride is the sin that keeps people from believing the Bible. We know better. We're right. It's wrong. So I guess the the one thing I want you to go home with this morning is understanding what pride is so that you're prepared to humble yourself. Because the Bible says if we humbled ourselves, we won't be humbled. If we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. If we humble ourselves, we'll be exalted. But you've got to understand what pride is. Like, kid comes home with his, uh, you know, his report card, and it's straight A's, and you're so proud of your kid. You tell me that's wrong, Steve? No, of course not. That's, that's not wrong. You should be proud of your kid. He did great. Pat him on the back, take him out for an ice cream, give him some money, congratulate him. It's a good thing. It's a good time. Well, you just said pride is wrong, Steve. Listen, how many of you have ever read a definition for a word in a dictionary before? Let me see your hands. Now, put your hands down. If you can think of a word in the dictionary that has only one definition, one word, put your hand back up. Yeah, I can't either. Dictionary is like this big because every word has all sorts of definitions. Pride is just one of those words. It can mean different things in different contexts. I want you to be aware of the bad side of pride, not the good side of pride. Perhaps we would be better using the word arrogance because that we never think of in a good way. So what exactly is pride? Foremost, in my mind, pride would be the attitude that we know best. I know better than you do. Just think about whatever it is. We get into arguments with people. Why? Because obviously we're right and they're wrong. That's pride. Well, what if I am right? Okay, so you're right. Chill. Have you ever been wrong before? Yeah, then you've got no business getting in somebody's face when they're wrong. Now, how about this? How many of you have ever thought you were right about something and then realized you were wrong about it. Let me see your hands. Yeah. So instead of opening your mouth and sticking your foot in again, next time you think you're right about something, just say, whoa, I think I'm right. But in my lifetime, I've been wrong more than once. In fact, I've been wrong lots of times when I thought I was right. So instead of getting all attitudinal and argumentative, I'll just say, you know what, I'm pretty confident I'm right, and here's why, but I'm going to leave it at that. Humble yourself, because you just never know. I mean, if you thought you were right, then you argued and realized you were wrong, what makes you think that's not happening right now about the very thing you're arguing about? So a bit of humility. Now, I'm not trying to say you can't know certain things. Of course, you can know certain things. Up is up, down is down, hot is hot, cold is cold. The Bible says don't murder. Murder is wrong. You don't have to, well, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's not wrong. No, it's wrong. But there are some things in the Bible that are much less plain than that. And those are the things we should just relax about. Or how about politics? Not even mentioned in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say who I should vote for. Now, I know who I'm voting for. I'm going with the guy who shares my values most closely, you know? 
the guy who says abortion's wrong, the guy who says gay marriage is wrong. Those are my biblical values. That's the guy I'm going with. But do I know who's going to make the better president? No. I could vote for Romney, and he could turn out to be the Antichrist. Right? Of course. I, I don't know. So let's not be arrogant. Go for the guy you think is best, be it Obama or Romney, but do it with thought. Do it for purpose. Give your intelligence behind your decision. Line it up with your values and then vote. But let God do what God does. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar. God raised up Belshazzar. God brought Belshazzar down. God brought up Reagan. God brought up Clinton. God brought up Obama. And God will bring him up again or Romney. Whatever God wants to do is okay by me. But he's given me the privilege to vote. And I take that responsibility very seriously. But I don't get into big fights over it. I'm not on Facebook with a lot of people who are just going, No, relax. Just relax. You don't know. You don't know. Humble yourself. Let God deal with it. Pride is the attitude that we know best. And why do we think we know best? Because obviously we're smarter than everybody else who disagrees with us about everything. That's arrogance. That's pride. And for those who don't trust the Bible, well, obviously, I'm smarter than the Bible. I know more than the Bible does. The book that's been around since about 3,500 years. The book that most of the wise men in our culture have reverenced and followed. The book that Jesus himself quotes and validates. I'm smarter than Jesus if I don't believe in the Bible. Really? Well, no, Steve, I, I'm not saying I'm smarter than Jesus. Yes, you are. He quoted it. He validated it. He said it's the word of God. And he said, Every, you need that more than food. Well, well, I just say none of that's true. It's just, it's all a made-up story. Okay, so the best-selling book of all time that's had the most impact on the planet that all the righteous people have followed is a made-up book, but you're smarter than all those people who've been following it for the last 3,500 years. There's just no way around it. The best you can do if you're a skeptic is say, I don't know. That's humble. And then, of course, I would say, well, then check. Check it out. Read it. Pride is deadly. It keeps us from learning. We think we know, so we no longer need to learn. Pride is the most deadly sin. It's the foundation sin for all the other sins, in my opinion. Any sin you can think of is built on pride. And unless we give up our pride will always be deceived about spiritual things. And this is the hardest thing to give up because pride keeps us from seeing our pride. <laughs> pride blinds us to our own pride. So how do we give it up? Well, you have to acknowledge that what God says is true, that we suffer from it, and it keeps us from the truth. Unless we give up pride, we'll always be deceived about spiritual things. Let me read to you one of the things the Bible says about pride. And I'm going to give you the context of it. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. It's of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So what's this world system? It ends with the pride of life. 
And the Bible says that's not of God. We need to avoid it. So there's really a couple of groups of people I've been wrapping up into this morning's lesson. I put the elitists over here who study history and archaeology, the scholars who criticize the Bible all day long, prideful. And people who just say, I don't believe the Bible. I think I know better, even though they don't say it that way. That's really what they say. I talked about them, too. But I've seen just as much pride amongst so-called Christians, probably more pride. It's of a different nature. We've humbled ourselves, we've admitted our sins, and we've given our lives to God. We've asked him to save us. That's great. That's, that's great. And yet, we tear each other down, we criticize each other, we break fellowship over the pettiest of little things. Pride. Pride in the church, the tool of the devil. And it infects us and afflicts us just like it does everybody else. So let me encourage you. Next time you're upset about something, do a spirit check. Say, God, help me to deal with my own pride. They shouldn't get away with it. Have you ever gotten away with anything? Has there ever been a time in your life where you screwed up and you're thankful for grace? Let me see your hands. So let's give grace to other people. And pride won't let you do that. Humility will. Give grace, receive grace. Belshazzar loved this world. Hey, break out the gold and the silver goblets for our party of a thousand nobles and let's live it up. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. But Daniel said, tomorrow you die. <laughs> a little paraphrase in there. He was deceived by the pride of life. And we are at risk too. But God has warned us, the writing's on the wall. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I think it's so true. Our own pride keeps us from seeing our own pride. Unless you open our eyes, we're in trouble. I pray for my brothers and sisters, those who've already turned from their sins and, and admitted their brokenness, and yet we still hurt one another in our pride. We all get up on our high and mighty horses in our pride. Please help us not to do that. Help us to love one another, to humble ourselves, to serve, not to be kings. And then for those, I talked about the elitists or just the average Joe who's never thought it through. Open their eyes, open their hearts. Help them to see Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.